Welcome to The Loop with Stan Guthrie. As an author and communicator, Stan offers a critical and often humorous look at the day's issues, all from a distinctly Christian perspective. From his home studio in Chicagoland, where it snows far too often for his tastes, Stan cheerfully takes on all comers in a culture that is losing its mind without losing his. And now, here is Stan Guthrie. Last week, my podcasting partner Doug LeBlanc and I took a look at a moving and thought-provoking new memoir by John Blake called More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. John, who in the book described, among many other things, his conversion to Christ, is an award-winning CNN journalist who writes about race, religion, and politics. John listened to our podcast, liked it, and offered to respond, and we quickly took him up on his kind offer. So welcome, John. It's an honor for Doug and me to speak with you today. Thank you. It's an honor for me. Tell us about your life, your book, or our podcast. Uh, we're all ears. Well, I guess to people who might, who maybe knew, didn't hear your previous podcast, I can briefly describe my story. Please. And, and then I can talk about my response to your, your podcast. So my story, I come from a very famous neighborhood. I was born in West Baltimore. In West Baltimore, I was born in this West Baltimore neighborhood that is infamous. It's all black inner city neighborhood, a lot of poverty and a lot of violence. It served as a setting for the HBO series, The Wire. Some people may remember that. It was also the setting for one of the worst race riots slash uprising slash rebellions, whatever you want to call it, uh, in 2015, when a black man named Freddie Gray was killed during, in, in police custody. And there's a place that former President Trump tweeted was one of the worst places in the world. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so it's, it's this place that's a symbol of black anger and, and the intractability of racism. And I was born there having a white mother I never knew. So she disappeared from my life not long after I was born. No one in my family told me why she disappeared. And I didn't know what the sound of her voice. I didn't know what she looked like. All I was told that is my mother's name is Shirley and your mother is white and her family hates black people. And so my story is just my journey to figure out what happened to my mom, why did she disappear? And why did this entire side of myself, this white side of my family want nothing to do with me just because my father was black? And faith, Christian faith played a crucial, uh, a crucial role in that journey. So that's the Cliff Notes version of my story. Mm. A big part of my story is the role white evangelical Christians played in helping me reconnect with my white family members. So what I describe to people growing up in, in Baltimore is I grew up with this tremendous hostility toward white people. And part of that, of course, was fed by knowing that my white family members wanted nothing to do with me. I had no contact with them. Mm. But also that was part of the world I, I grew up in. Nobody seemed to like white people. Uh, we only time we saw white people came when we saw white police officers who would abuse people, beat them up, brutalize them in front of us, and maybe we saw them as teachers. But I, I grew up in an incredibly racially segregated environment where I absorbed those attitudes toward white people, even though I knew my my mom was white. 
And so one of the things that's really important is that as I grew older, what helped me overcome a hostility is when I joined a church in college that just happened to be a church that really made interracial solidarity a, a big part of its identity. And so I tell people what converted me when people start coming up to me in college and saying, you should give your life to Christ, you don't want to go to hell, <laughs> you know, Jesus died for you on the cross. I tell them all those abstract things didn't make much sense to me. It didn't resonate with me. But when I went into those churches and I saw black and white and brown people hug one another, call each other sister and brother, pray with one another, have relationships outside Sunday, go off for pizza, date one another, you know, meet each other in their homes. That was the thing that helped convert me. I didn't see that before, and I needed that in order to reconnect with my white family members. Sean, please remind me how you uh, came to know of that church. I, I think it was maybe through one of your classmates at Howard, or, yes. or was it? Yeah. Okay. yeah. It was, uh, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the classic conversion story, which seems like these little accidents that happen that you look back you know, today and you think, wow, that was the move of God. But mm -hmm. a friend of mine knocked on my dorm room one night in college, and I went to Howard University, which is this elite black, historically black college in D.C. Like Kamala Harris was one of my classmates, to give you an idea the type of place it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he just happened to knock on my door. It was the wrong door, and uh, he had a Bible in his hand, <laughs> and he said he wanted to have a Bible study, and that's the last thing I wanted to do. But he was a friend of mine, and that's how it started. Then mm -hmm. we began to go to hit the church he went to, and this is before Promise Keepers. This is before, this is in the uh, early 80s, early to mid 80s. And it was unusual to see that type of interracial church. And some might argue that it's still unusual. And that was really, really crucial. How do you feel about what we said about your story in our podcast? Do you, do you feel like we portrayed it accurately or what did we miss? I do. I do. I mean, it's a very complex story because you might recall there there are elements of the story that are frankly hard to believe, that stray into areas that might be called, I mean, they can only be called supernatural or paranormal, things that are like, yeah, did that really happen? And it's a complex story because I talk a lot about not just faith, but racism. And so I thought you portrayed it well. There was one thing I think Doug said that I want to pick up on, and it's not something I disagree with, but it's something I think I should expand on. If I recall correctly, I don't know if it's Doug, maybe you said it's Sam, but someone said that it seemed like most of the racism I experienced as a kid came from black people. And I, I think yeah, that, I said that. Okay, yeah, so that bears elaboration. The reason, and it's true, I talk about how just having a white mother, people suspected that I had a white mother growing up, that that exposed me to a lot of racism and from, from black people who just hated white people so much that if, if you had a white mother or if you had light skin, they wanted to attack you. But I would challenge that notion that I still experienced tremendous amount of racism as a kid because even though I didn't have white people that I saw, keep in mind that as a kid, I knew that there was this entire side of my family that wanted nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know my mother my grandfather, my aunts and uncles, because of racism. That was a huge void in my life that I knew early on. So that's one part. And I, mm -hmm. I carried that with me through my childhood. And two, what I talk a lot about in the book is racial segregation. The reason I didn't 
get exposed to a lot of direct racism from white people because no white people lived around us. Mm. It was incredibly racially segregated. All the schools were poor, underfunded, racially segregated. No white people would buy homes in our neighborhood. There was white flight in Baltimore, and that really devastated the city. So I tried to show that there are all different types of racism, and there are more subtle forms of racism that go beyond somebody using the N-word, and that was a definite, huge shaper of my childhood. And I had forgotten about that horrible encounter you had with the policeman who was uh, brutalizing yeah, yeah. someone right in front of you. So I, yeah, I, that was just a, a careless remark, I think, uh, in the heat of in not the heat of the moment, but just a, a spontaneous remark. But all your points are well taken on that. Yeah, and I, I don't see it as a careless remark. I mean, on, on one level, it's true because we did receive a lot of just physical attacks. From, from black people. And I say we, I have a younger brother, Patrick, a year younger, who went through that. I mean, he was brutally attacked by a group of young black boys just because he had light skin. So there, you know, there's this debate in academics. I don't know if you're aware of this. There are people who say that black people can't be racist because we don't have power. And for me, yeah, we can talk about that all day. But when I saw my younger brother coming home bleeding from being hit on the head with red rocks, that was power to me. That was racism, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So. I recall that scene where you described showing up at the hardware store and you ended up, oh, in yeah. your own, own words, profiling the black gentleman. You know, that seems like a very yeah. small thing. But as you say in the book, I mean, uh, I think we're all susceptible to racism at some level. You know, it's, it's a virus that uh, enters the human heart and it's very hard to eradicate. Tell us a little bit more about your faith journey and how that's impacted your thoughts about race and about relationships, how it got your family, I would say, back together in a really spectacular way. It took a long time. Yeah, it was crucial. My faith, I joined, as I mentioned very briefly early, I joined this evangelical church in college, and it was interracial. So from there on, I always tried to go to interracial churches. And to me, the stories that really spoke to me as this biracial man were the stories from the New Testament in the book of Acts that showed the first century Christians dealing with all these divisions, you know, racial, gender, ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, slave, male, female. All those things really spoke powerfully to me and how they found an identity that transcended it. You know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, you know, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. That really spoke to me. So I carried that within my heart and I, and I practiced it in the churches I attended, but what I talk about in my story, but when it came to applying those teachings to meeting the white family member, my white family members who rejected me, it was much more difficult. It was stop and go. So what I tell people, a conversion is kind of like a continual experience. You just don't get it right once and you don't have to deal with this stuff. It's continual. So that's what happened. And to answer your question about how it connected with my white family members, when I began to meet them as an adult, it was very difficult to bridge that chasm between how they saw the world and how they saw race and how I saw it. And I'll tell you a story that illustrates that. And this will play into that story about me racially profiling a black man. So one of the people I met in my mother's family when I first began to reconcile was my mother's sister, Aunt Mary, I call mm-hmm. it today. 
And when I was in my mid-20s, she just sent notice like, hey, I want to meet you and I want to meet your brother. And I didn't want to meet her because my attitude was, where were you when I needed you? You weren't with me when I was a kid. You didn't reach out to me. I heard all these stories about how racist you were. And, and keep in mind, I was very aware that the white members of my family, they just weren't indifferent toward us. They were racist. I mean, there was violence. They, there were people in my mother's family that called my father the N-word, had him arrested, attacked him. So I was aware of this when she wanted to meet me. And so when I met her, we met, we talked nice, we met a couple times, and I asked her one day, why didn't you reach out to me when I was younger? Was it because I'm black? And she said, no, it wasn't because you were black. It was because you were a Catholic. Your race had nothing to do with it. And I knew she was lying in that moment, and it made me so angry, so I cut her off. And for a long time, I wouldn't really talk to her until that day at the hardware store you just alluded to. I went to a hardware store one day, and I saw a black man and a white man behind the counter. And the white man was on the phone, and the black man was free. But I waited until the white man was off the phone and then went up to him and asked him for help. And then it only occurred to me later, I said, wow, I just racially profiled this man. <laughs> and, you know, and I said, maybe I should give a little more grace to my Aunt Mary. And so what I did is I kept all these letters that she had written me over the years, like pleading for a relationship. And I had never really read them. They were unopened. And I went into my desk in my office, home office. I opened these letters and I began to read through all these letters she had written me over the years. And I was stunned. I felt so dumb because everything I wanted from her was in those letters. She apologized for not reaching out to me. She was frank and open. It was because of my racism. And she said, if you don't want anything to do with me, I totally understand, but I want to have a relationship with you. Mm. And it, was just, it just knocked me out. And to bring it full circle, our relationship blossomed after that. And the key part was Christianity. She was a mm. devout Roman Catholic. And so when we began to negotiate and really try to be family, the language of forgiveness, of grace, of acknowledging your sin for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that was in us. And that kind of became a bridge for us. Mm. And that's one of the things I try to describe in the story. Your uh, personal story is really powerful because you do combine the religious, the faith aspect with the socio-political things. Mm -hmm. Your book is not political, but as I read it, I was thinking about all the fraught discussions we're having as a nation yeah. right now. And yeah. I was struck by how you just spoke directly to your own situation. And I'm wondering how you think what you learned, you know, through the course of years, as you say, it wasn't just a quick, you know, when you became a Christian, everything was fixed. How do you see your own experience as applying to the larger uh, societal discussion we're having about race and, and forgiveness and that kind of thing? Well, that's, that's an excellent question, and because I've thought so much about it, and I think it's the key to the book. The way I interpret my experience as applying to what's happening is that a lot of what I learned as a person conflicted with what I was taught as a journalist. So I've been a journalist at CNN for about 14 years, and before that I worked at a newspaper, and most of that time, for the last 25 years, I've covered race and politics. So any big racial story, I probably covered or written about it from Rodney King protests, Obama, mm -hmm. 
Trump, Charlottesville, Ferguson. I have seen the worst of racism in this country, not only personally, but professionally. And to answer your question, I always thought that the way you change racial attitudes is if you would just expose people to facts, write these hard-hitting stories, show them these incredibly graphic videos like George Floyd, show those things to them, surely they will change their minds because you can't deny the facts, you can't deny your eyes. I no longer believe that. I think what's really crucial is the thing that we've forgotten is that facts don't change people, relationships do. Because when I look back at what changed the white members of my family who denied their racism, who are now close to me, when I look back to what changed me, it wasn't a book I read, it wasn't a protest I attended, it, it wasn't that. It was just these relationships we had. So I tell people, you know, changing policy and laws to address racism, those things are vital. I would never say it's not. Mm -hmm. But also creating these interracial communities, these spaces for interracial relationships where people can interact and get to know each other is also an indispensable tool for fighting racism, whether it's in a church or whether it's in our society. And I think we've forgotten that because we've become, we become so isolated. That's how I feel like my story, that's one of the ways I think it applies to what's happening now. There's no substitute for getting to know somebody who sees the world different, who's a different color, who sees things different. We have to do it. You can't do it at a, at a distance. I'd like to ask you a bit more about your maternal grandfather for a moment. I, oh. I think one of the great <laughs> moments in your story is when you yeah. pray with your wife and you yeah. uh, address your grandfather and tell and tell him you have forgiven him and you want peace for him. If you have any um, thoughts about possibly seeing him in the afterlife and whether <laughs> that gives you any hope that the two of you could actually get to know each other as people without that toxin of racism that prevented him from coming to know you when you were a child? Well, that's another really good question. And I think I wanna offer some little background for the, for the listener who might not know the story about my grandfather, my mother's father, which is it's very unusual. So the background is that I grew up hearing stories about him. I knew that he was very, very harmful to my father. He called my father the N-word, had him arrested, assaulted him. He wanted nothing to do with me. So he died before contacting me. I never knew him. I just knew him as this really hateful racist who didn't want anything to do with me. Hmm. A part of what I talk about in my book is that in a way he did contact me. I talk about these experiences I had on three different occasions when I know this sounds strange, but he made an appearance and they were terrifying. And now I would not have shared this experience and I wouldn't be talking about it now if I was alone. On each occasion, someone was there with me. They saw and experienced the same thing. So part of my story was I had to figure out what did he want from me? And one of the things that I had to learn is that you can't define somebody by their worst act. Yes, my mm -hmm. grandfather did really incredibly hateful racist things, but I began to learn more about him and he had this other side where he was a person of faith, where he actually had profound friendships with black people. He was a mixture, you know, good and bad. And so to go back, you know, Doug, to that question, there came a kind of climatic point in the book where his appearances 
became so persistent and they were so terrifying that I felt like I had to do something to deal with it. And that's when I prayed for him. And I, I prayed, you know, to let him know that I forgave him. And, and to answer your question, I thought like maybe one day, you know, you talk about First Corinthians, we shall see face to face, that when I see him face to face, that would be good. I feel like there's peace between us because I don't feel any kind of hatred or anger toward him now. I feel sorrow for him because one of the things I try to tell people when I tell that story, I wasn't just trying to tell this as a ghost story. I was trying to tell people this is the result of racism, this is the result of sin, that it tormented him so much that even he could not find rest even beyond death. He had to make amends. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that that's a tremendous amount of guilt for anyone to carry around. So yeah, I that was a very unusual part of the story, but all that is all hundred percent true. Yeah, one reason I asked the question is that in my own life, you know, I can think of, well, I'll, I'll talk about my dad for a minute. Okay. Yeah, you know, when I was a child, I, I was just a spoiled brat, a materialist, was not grateful for the things that mm. he did for us. And in my thinking about heaven, one of the first things I would love to do is to go to him and say, thank you. Thank you for tolerating yeah. me. I'm sorry I was such a, a nightmare as a child and to ask his forgiveness. Yeah. I'm sure he had already forgiven me in this life, but it would feel more complete if I could give him that sort of unrestrained confession. Yeah, yeah. I got to yeah. tell you, family issues are often perplexing, <laughs> as we all know, yeah. and they're often the hardest things that we have to deal with. You know, they say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, in my case, I had a family where half didn't want, want anything to do with me because I was black. So that's really challenging when one day you have to learn how to accept them when they haven't accepted you. So that that's a challenge. And, and then we haven't even talked about my mom, who has a pretty incredible story, too. Uh, please please yeah. give, give us some of that. Well, the subtitle is What I Discovered About the White Mother I Never Knew. And... I did learn something that comes to mind from my mom that's become really important to me. So some background, I did not meet my mom until I became a young man. I was 17 on my way to college. And my father came to me one day and he just said, do you want to meet your mom? It was like a bombshell. There was no warning, no preparation. <laughs> and I, along with my younger brother, we were taken, driven to this really menacing looking brick red building on the outskirts of uh, Baltimore in Maryland. And it looked like the prison set for the Shawshank Redemption. That's what it looked mm -hmm. like, just a gloomy, dreary place. And we were escorted into this waiting room. And while we were waiting there, we could hear people moaning in pain in the background and others were laughing like hysterically. Mm -hmm. And then a hospital orderly escorted a thin white woman into the room. And when she looked at us, her eyes, her face just lit up with joy. And she just came to us saying, oh boy, oh boy, so good to see you, John and Pat. And that was our first time seeing a mom. Now, what was so awkward about that was not just that that was the first time me seeing her. It was where I saw her. It was in the waiting room of a mental institution. My mom had a severe form of mental illness called schizophrenia. And a huge reason why she was away from me all the time is that she'd been institutionalized not long after she had me and my younger brother. Now, our institutionalized 
race could have played a big factor. In those days, in the mid-60s, interracial marriage was illegal. That's when I was born. And often what happened to young Catholic women is that they, when they had children or were with black men, they were considered wayward women. They were considered that something was wrong with them. And some of them were just put away out of shame. So that could have been a factor as well. But the point is, I want to make this about, say this about my mom. When I met her and I saw her in that waiting room, and she was wearing these like kind of goodwill hand-me-down clothes. Mm -hmm. She was very thin. You could just tell she had a life of hardship. I recall that she immediately began to shift my racial attitudes. Before I met her, I didn't think that any white person could understand what it meant to be black, to grow up in the world that I grew up in with all this discrimination, all this poverty, all this violence, for people to judge you just for the way you were born. But when I saw my mom, I said, wow, I've never seen a black person suffer like that. So for the first time in my life, I felt empathy toward a white person. Wow. And that was really important for me to see her. I had never seen, you know, we hear the term white fragility today. I had never seen fragility in a white person before until I met in my mom. And so that <laughs> built up that empathy. And again, it goes back to what I'm saying. There are things we can only learn when we're in relationship. It can't be through our mind, through our neck up, through reading a book. That shift began when I met her. John, one thing one thing I would also like to ask of you is that how much of your work would you estimate is devoted to covering race and how much of it mm. uh, is covering religion? Because I just read a story of yours in the past week about how the hour of being at church may be the oh, most yeah. dangerous hour yeah. in America for a lot of people. And that's a great story of... The story is about faith, but it's also about a very persistent problem for yeah. so many communities. A random violence suddenly breaking out. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, it shifts. It varies from year to year. When Obama was president, I wrote about race probably 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. And then with President Trump, I wrote about it a lot too. But lately, I've shifted where I've written a lot more about faith. But the two, to me, are so intertwined. Okay. There's a huge part of my story I talk about how difficult it is to have a genuine multicultural interracial church. Mm -hmm. I talk about what, what's that like. I tell people, I don't know if you recall you know, me talking about this, but there's a difference between a racially mixed church and a racially integrated church. Mm -hmm. In a racially yes. mixed church, you have black and white and brown people sitting on the pews next to one another, and that's good. But in a racially integrated church, people not only share pews, but they share power. Mm -hmm. And so if mm -hmm. I go to a racially integrated church, when I look on the pulpit, I'm not just seeing white men. You know, I'm seeing mm -hmm. brown and black people. And I'm hearing worship songs that maybe acknowledge my culture. I'm hearing all, I'm seeing things that may acknowledge me as a person of color. So that's a really difficult balance to achieve. But for me, the way to make these churches last is that you, you have to be integrated. You have to find a way to acknowledge the cultures and share power with people of color and also, frankly, women. And that's really difficult to do. And I've seen a lot of churches just flounder trying to do that. Mm -hmm. So, John, do you feel hopeful about the issues that you write about now? Yeah, I remember y'all were talking in a podcast, I don't know who said it, I'm, I'm, it's a rough paraphrase about <laughs> how racism can just seem 
insurmountable and like we can't get past this. And this is a very rough paraphrase, but one of you said a remark that reflected kind of uh, almost like a fatalism, a pessimism about how can we get past this in, 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 our, in our country. And that is something that I see everywhere and I frankly struggle with it myself. But one of the reasons I wrote the story is, is because when I look at what's happened between me and my family, I'm like, if we can heal, <laughs> others can. Racial attitudes can change. There's no doubt about it. We have plenty of social science behind us to show how it changes. So it's not a mystery. And, and one of the things that really gives me hope to answer your question is, frankly, my mother. And I've struggled to articulate this because sometimes when you're doing these interviews, you try to talk in sound bites and it doesn't make sense. And so I'm gonna just try to say it. So my mom, she's the one that gives me hope. And why is that? My mom had nothing. My mom was a poor, working class, Irish Catholic woman who did the unthinkable in the mid 60s. She had two black sons out of wedlock. She enraged her family. She defied her community. And not long after she had her two sons, they were taken from her and she spent most of her life in these institutions. So it's a, it was a life of tremendous suffering. And I remember once I had to move my mom's belongings and everything she owned in the world could, be, could fit into a cardboard box no bigger than a microwave oven. So she had nothing. So she was somebody who seemed to have no power. But then I think about it a little bit more. When my mom and my father got together in the mid-60s, over 90% of Americans opposed interracial marriage. Today, over 90% of Americans accept and support interracial marriage, and that support that, cro that cuts across racial political lines. It doesn't matter, you know. We see biracial children and interracial couples today like it's nothing. And I ask myself, how did that happen? I mean, that was unthinkable in the mid 60s. I don't know if you guys remember this, but in mm -hmm. 1968, the singer Herb Belafonte got in trouble when he was on a TV show and a white singer named Batula Clark touched his arm while they <laughs> were singing a duet. And that was like uproar. So that was like the big taboo. But now we've mm -hmm. created this world where there's such a shift in attitudes. I'm like, how did that happen? And I say, one of the reasons it happened because of people like my mom. And what do I mean by that? Is that they, when it was illegal, they didn't wait for the Supreme Court to say, this is you know, valid interracial marriage, is constitutional, they didn't wait for politicians to act. All these black and white brown people in the mid 60s loved who they decided they were gonna love who they were gonna love. They had all these interracial marriages and biracial children, and they thought this is right. We're all, there's only one race, the, the human race. And when enough of them began to do that, it created this ripple effect. So that now that it's become a norm, and like she was part of this vanguard of these people that changed racial attitudes. And so I say to people, my mom had more power than she realized. And I'm living proof of that. I'm living proof that ordinary people who seem like they have no power can change the direction of this country in ways you would never expect. I'm living proof, nobody thinks twice about interracial marriage or biracial children anymore. This is normal. And I think we can take that and apply that to all these other issues that we think are insurmountable. The power is not in courts, politicians, judges, 
It's in the power of ordinary people like my mom and what you do in your ordinary life and your private life. So that, that gives me tremendous hope. You sound very proud of her. Oh, I am. I mean, you know, you guys probably know scriptures in the New Testament better than I do. So, you know, I, I recall scriptures about Paul talking about God's weakness and, and, and just all these emphasis on the New Testament about people who seemed like they were nothing, but Jesus saw in them so much more. You know, the disciples were not learned, powerful, rich people. They were working class fishermen. The first Christians were people who were like often on the fringes of society. So, and to me, she was like that, somebody on the outside who seemed like she had nothing, had nothing to offer. But her faith meant so much to her. And her ability to laugh, to joke, to be angry, to care about injustice after all that she had gone through, yes. I am proud of her. Her life is, uh, I, I would say, kind of a rebuke to a lot of the values that a lot of Americans hold dear, including me sometimes. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, you know, we're all, you know, chasing the brass ring or, you know, trying to be yeah. famous or, you know, whatever yeah. else, thinking we're we're really something that we're not. And here she is, you know, with, with basically nothing, uh, certainly not someone that most people would say, I want to be in her shoes. And yet yeah. she's she's having a profound impact from the margins and making a real difference. Certainly yeah, she's yeah. affected you in, in wonderful ways. And she was used of God to bring your family together, I would say, in a remarkable way. And she didn't yeah. do it through a lot of uh, scheming or hard work or anything, but just being herself and, and allowing God to work through her, even in her imperfections. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And there's, you know, one other thing I want to add, I don't want to ramble too much. You're not rambling. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I tell people sometimes, like, that he who tells the best story wins. And what I mean by that is that I think human beings are driven primarily by stories. It's how we comprehend the world. It's how we see things. Families have stories about who they are, and that shapes behavior. And I think we're at a point in this country, it's really important that we tell certain type of stories because there are others out there telling stories that we will always be divided, that you can't trust that person who looks different, who's a different color, who sees the world different. And we're so divided. And I feel like it's really important that we tell these stories that are inspirational, moving, showing people finding a way to get past racism and all these differences, but stories that are real, not phony. But we have to tell these stories. And when we tell these stories, I think it shows people that this isn't impossible, that we can get past that. And so that's part of what I wanted to do too. I wanted to share a story that would just be not phony, but hopeful. And I, you know, it's weird, as a journalist, I would always look for those stories, but only later did I realize I was kind of, well, you know, I'm living such a story. So <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Doug, do you have anything else? I would just like to ask if John has a weblog or a newsletter that people ought to be aware of. Thank you. Um, I'm very accessible. I have a Facebook and Twitter page. Uh, I have a website, johnkblake.com. I just want to express my appreciation for you coming on with us and further explicating your views and allowing us to get to know you a little better. And we wish you every success at CNN. Thank you, Stan and Doug. I appreciate it. Yes, indeed. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on The Loop with Stan Guthrie.